Opera by its nature is larger than life. People are singing their guts out. That doesn't happen in real life. There's nothing kitchen sink about it. Hello, I'm Gunnam and welcome to Crew Chats Podcast, where I speak to people that work behind the scenes in film, TV and theatre. For today's episode, I chatted with Mitch Bloom, who is assistant staff costume designer at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. We chatted about the ins and outs of working in the opera, importance of costume design, the allure of opera and lots more. Hi, Mitch. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time to speak to me again. So, um, you're assistant staff costume designer at the Met Opera, and what does that involve for you? Um, so, this current job, a lot of my work is dealing with returning repertoire and repertory. And I come in every day. We have a uh, revised schedule that comes out about six p.m. every night. Mm-hmm. And on it will be a listing of all the rehearsals, both in rehearsal rooms and on stage and fittings for principal singers. And separately, I will get a weekly um, listing of fittings for let's say the entire chorus. Some of those fittings, which I have to deal with because they're new builds. If something, I'm not at every fitting, my boss is not at every fitting, if it's something very straightforward, basically refitting somebody in their same costume, maybe they've gained or lost a little weight, that's straightforward. Not yes, straightforward. And really just getting, making sure that my boss and I are in the right place at the right time. We often have um, one, two, three, four, five fittings at once. And if we're really unlucky, they're on two different floors the second mm-hmm. floor. <laughs> and sometimes it's like, it, I'll have to say, take a photo, and then they will send me the photo, and then I'll print them out, and then we'll review them. We will review the photos with the draper or tailor and say, how about this and how about that? We are we are picking new fabrics and trims and button samples. I have an, ex- an extensive archive in my office, but sometimes we don't have the right thing, and they have to go out again. And the buttons and the trim, I try to update every summer. And um, the fabric swatches, I kind of do a rotation. I kind of don't keep them around more than a year or so. So there, there is a, there is a kind of an attrition there. And then we are, you know, we do have to live by a budget. It's kind of, there's kind of a cap of fabric for choristers and a cap of fabric for principals. And there is a a thought that the the understudies, the cover fabrics should be less expensive. I don't agree with that because we're in a repertory situation and within that first season or the next season, what was made for an understudy will end up on your first cast, either that singer or someone that singer's size. Mm-hmm. And I am very, it, my number one goal is to maintain maintain the design the design as the original designer envisioned it and you know if they spend 150 dollars a yard on a chorus costume for a new production that kind of locks it in i mean how you know there's a certain level that is set when a production is new and i want to maintain that level as best i can and that becomes very tricky my number one job is to maintain the designer's vision my number two is that what we put in is seamless that you can you'll be able to see the production and not know that who are the two chorus women who are new to the production and new fabrics and new trims and new designs that have never been in the production before 
uh, we have fittings, we have dress rehearsals, and every time someone is on stage in a costume, which sometimes can be just, other than shoes, sometimes it can be just one character in costume, but I have to be there because there may be notes. Okay. And obviously when there's a full costume dress rehearsal, um, I, I can't be gone for a second. If there's you know things going on all the time, there's hundreds of people on stage in costume. Yeah, and and you mentioned your boss, so um, that would be the in-house costume designer who is yes. Sylvia. Sylvia Nolan, yes. Well, I imagine a lot of things are unsaid between you because you. I know I for I know that you've been working together for a long time. But what is the key to that successful relationship? Well, you know, and I talk about this when I lecture online to to universities and libraries and things. It's that when you assist. When you assist a different designer, even well, as a designer, you have to be somewhat of a chameleon because you're doing an opera play, a ballet, modern dress, period, mm. set anywhere in the world at any time with rich characters, poor characters. But as an assistant, you really have to be a, I don't want to say, well, a chameleon, a mind reader. I mean, I have worked with I have worked with designers who are extremely extremely um specific they want to pick every button every bead every piece of trim and i've worked with other designers who say oh uh, don't they'll say to the the dressmaker don't don't talk to me about buttons have mitch pick the buttons or you know so it you have to know what are your boundaries which every time you work with someone different so but you don't want to always overstep your overstep your bounds. So mm -hmm. it's each person you have to know what is how can I be most useful to this person. There are so if I mean there's a slight difference between where you get two types of opera that come into the Met. It's either a new opera or a um a repertory opera. Right, returning rep. Right, yeah. a returning rep. Yeah, sorry. And then so there's but the old one, but the new ones become returning rep the next season. Okay. <laughs> we did the hours. We did we did the hours last year as a new production, and this year it is mostly the same cast, but it is now considered a repertory production. Okay. How do you how do you keep the um, spark alive for what you do? Well, hopefully, when it gets on, when all is said and done, and it gets on stage, that it looks good, and the director's happy, and. Um, the singers are happy and and the audience is happy. Um, I was I was saying to her, uh, uh, like somebody didn't understand, forgot what it was. Oh, I guess it was my sister who who's a who's a nurse. She doesn't work in the business. And I, I don't know, I must have said something about one of our one of our actors in um, I think Don Carlo or something was wearing a wedding band. And I'm there on my, I have, a, I have like a iPad that I sit in the auditorium and type on and it goes all over the building. And, and I send this note, like is, you know, Mr. Jones, is he wearing a wedding band? And I get a message back from the wardrobe supervisor saying, well, you know, that Mr. Jones, he, uh, he's married himself and his character's married. So he thought he could just wear his wedding band. <laughs> I, but, but, you know, Men in the 17th century basically didn't wear wedding bands. Women did. And I mean, it's not hard and fast, but I normally I don't put a wedding band on a man, probably late 20th century, yeah. you know, post-war. But, you know, my sister, my sister said, now, why is that? Why do who's seeing that? And why is that? I said, well, because 
when you think about it, you have a hundred people on stage and everybody has, I mean, I don't do, I'm not in charge of wigs and makeup, but you still have, you know, earrings, bracelet, gloves, dress, hat, scarf, belt, hosiery, shoes, mm. purse. You've got, you multiply 10, 10, 10 pieces on every person and not just, are they wearing the right hat? Are they wearing it at the correct angle? Do they take their gloves off when they're supposed to and keep them on when they're supposed to? And so it is, it is thousands and thousands and thousands of decisions. Mm. And we know we're gonna miss some of them. So I have to send a note when somebody's wearing a <laughs> shouldn't because there's another hundred notes that I haven't caught. And I don't know if Mr. Jones took his wedding band off and then, you know, by, by performance too, we had it back on again, <laughs> you know, but I have to do my job as thoroughly as I can. Yeah, uh, of course. And, um, and, that keeps, and it's never done. And it's, it's live theater. It is never done. We have, we have been doing things. I don't, you know, I have a big Bible of each opera or often it's like three or four Bibles and they're mm. like, four inches and it's got you know not just all the cast lists it's fabric swatches and trim and buttons and sometimes cutting details and research and the sketches of course and occasionally I will put one away like after you know after 16 of the 18 performances I'll put it back on the bookshelf <laughs> invariably there's a problem before the last performance <laughs> And I have to dig it out again. I've like put it away. So no, we are not done until the final, the final act of the final performance of that title. I'm not at every performance. My boss isn't at every performance, but we still get notes. Yeah, of course. And things still get some, you know, if it's obviously if a hem is pulled out, then I don't even know about it. But it's when somebody, somebody lost her earring and it's been, you have to realize too, is that because we're in a rep situation, it's not like a Broadway show, you know, Wicked, where they're on the st same stage eight times a week. Uh, La Boheme is totally struck and they put up, you know, Carmen or Turandot or... Things are bound to go missing, aren't they? In that sort of change around. Absolutely. And that earring, it gets rolled up in a, in a, in a um, ground cloth or it's been ground to dust by the scenery, uh, you know. So very rarely, if like somebody loses an earring, does it ever show up again? No, that's why you're there though. That's part of your job. Because <laughs> we don't, it, I mean, a Broadway show will have, well, more apt to have backup stuff. Yeah, of course. But, and you know, Broadway shows will have, will have like four of every, every shirt or blouse. Mm. And we have one of something. And we don't necessarily, even, understudies don't necessarily even have their own shoes if they're the same size as the first cast. And so if, you know, the sole falls off of a, of a shoe, we don't necessarily even have something Another for the pair. understudy. Yeah. That makes sense. Just for a lay person, if you could just lay out very briefly the structure of the costume department. I know you sort of touched upon it earlier. Um, at the Met or in, in... I would say at the Met because I guess okay, that's short. At yeah, at okay. the Met. Um, just a sort of brief rundown of how it okay. kind of operates. Okay, a new production, we're going to have a designer and possibly an assistant. It's either going to be 
a world premiere or else it's coming from another, you know, we do a lot of things that come from ROH or ENO in London, or now we're doing stuff from, we have co-pros from all over. Mm. It's going to come in. It, it, the opera works very far in advance, a couple seasons in the, in advance, in fact. Yeah. And they will, they will have a budget. They'll try to figure out how they're going to spend it and uh, whether, how much is made in house, how much is made, Sometimes something will be made in the original opera house that premiered the piece they'll make for our company. The Met Opera is is bigger in both Met Opera Chorus is bigger in both number and girth, probably compared to other opera houses. Okay. Um, I think the prevailing thought is if it's a if it's a co-pro, that we're gonna still have to build about a third of the production at least. Okay. Unfortunately, unfortunately, there is this prevailing thought that, oh, it's just dry cleaning and shipping the clothes from London to New York and poof, they're done. And it's no. never that way. And sometimes we're doing a co-pro and like all the sword belts came from the stock at Royal Opera House. And that's not part of the rental agreement or the or the co-pro agreement. It's like you, we're, we're co-producing. You get all the clothes, but we need to keep all the sword belts for other productions. So that throws you for a little bit of a. So then you stop making those. Add those things right. in. You have to add that. Uh, if it's if it's a returning returning rep, and we're doing this right now for next season, it's going over all the all the titles, and I actually have have a function on the on the OS drive where I can look at. I can print out who has ever sung a role or understudied a role, in the entire history of that production. Wow. So, you know, who has sung Mimi in, in La Boheme or covered it? And it's like a list this big and then, you know, 30 names <laughs> and then 30 other people. So then at least it, it's like, I'll be talking, I'll be talking to somebody and said, look for the costume that has so-and-so's name in it. Uh, so we are, so, so something like the returning rep now, it's looking through the, every, every title. What, what's the inventory? How many sets of clothes do we have? Or that are wearable. There are some that really probably should be in the archives because they, they're not really wearable. And um, then figuring out it's like the game of Tetris, figuring out who goes into which set. So, the designer designs a costume. It's an ensemble. All the fabrics coordinate, the hat, the shoes, the purse, the everything. And as a production comes back, they'll say, "Well, this dress fits Miss A." And, but the hat doesn't fit Miss A. We'll have to move it to Miss B. But Miss B has a different dress, which is a different colorway. So then we're like, we're like retrimming a hat to work with a costume it was never designed to go with. Is that, a lot of your job sounds a lot like you need to have a lot of foresight, which I guess comes with experience as well. <laughs> like, I think so. Yeah. Think it's like a ch playing chess. You have to think. I'm, I, I, I'm not a great chess player, but it's about my father was. So it is about like thinking four moves in the future. Where are you going to be? Talking Hard. of where would you be? What if you were going to be doing anything else right now? What would it be job wise? I, I don't know. It's uh, <laughs> I am in I am in that position where I, I could be retired in five years, six years. And so would I would I go to a new job? I mean, I never it didn't occur to me until, you know, it didn't really occur to me till till COVID hit about going back to freelancing, but that could happen. You know, um, the Met, the Met is as any organization, especially in this kind of environment, the, 
everything, you know, everybody is changing. Everybody's scrambling. Our new, our general manager's new, new thought now is that what is, what is going, what is going to save the Met will be doing more new productions, new commissions, new compositions, rather than a whole raft of, you know, Revive. Wagner, Verdi, Strauss, and Puccini. And that brings its own its own issues. So about that, actually, because you said that the what are, what do you think are the challenges facing opera and theatre and then live performance generally? Because aging it is audience. I think there's an aging audience. I think there's still an audience that's scared of COVID, especially an older audience. Mm. You know, and and people got used to it. People got used to not seeing things live. And, uh, you know, I had I had a friend who has since died. I had a friend who um, used to come into New York maybe once a month to see a, a Saturday matinee at the Met. And we would meet for lunch. And I called him up one day and said, I, I never see you anymore. He said, you know, Mitch, now that you're doing the HD broadcasts, I think there's 10 of them a year. He said, I kind of get my opera fix. And I go, to, I go to the local movie theater and I see the HD broadcast from the Met. And I don't come into New York anymore. So the HD is is a wonderful thing in that it's it's getting people who can't come to New York who don't see live opera to get to see these productions. Mm. It's probably more detrimental to regional opera companies than the Met. If somebody saw, you know, Anna Netrebko in Aida on an HD broadcast in, you know, Dubuque, Iowa, are they going to book a ticket to come to New York? Is, will they want to see Anna Netrebko in something else? Will they want to see Aida with her? Will they want to see Aida with somebody else? It does raise the profile of the Met, but and you know the National Theatre now is doing um, a lot of a live you know live transmissions and captures and yeah, Scala and every so it's there are a lot of people who are just like I don't need to go out anymore. I don't need to you know hire a babysitter, get in the car, drive here, go, stay in a hotel, buy dinner. People are getting bigger and bigger TVs with better sound systems. Mm. It's not like you know in the in the in the nineteen in the nineteen in the early nineteen fifties TVs were this big yeah. and they were scared of t- movies were the movie the movie companies were scared of TV taking away their audience. So that's when in the early fifties you got you know around the world in eighty days and the greatest show on earth and Ben Hur. You know in the fifties you had these giant giant spectacle movies. movies. They were about kind of. Bringing people back to the movie theater. Broadway Broadway has not returned to its pre its pre pandemic levels either. No, I think maybe they're saying maybe twenty twenty five. Yeah, I mean there are going to be the shows like you know Wicked or Hamilton that are going to be do, doing well, but how many shows like that are there? There even sh- there are some shows now that are getting pretty good reviews and just aren't pulling in an audience. Interesting. What do you think aside from COVID being the recovery from covid what do you think the met for let's let's speak about opera specifically actually actually are you a uh, now this are you a fan of opera i was not i was you know i was certainly more interested in in straight theater and and musical theater Mm. but um but like anything else there's there's great and i haven't talked about you know my three to watch but there are i even if you don't like opera Going to see going to see something like Turandot just for the spectacle is fantastic. I uh, I I basically do not see any operas other than the Met. If I travel, I don't go see the opera. I'm seeing I'm seeing you're seeing so many every day. So much it's like the last <laughs> thing I want to see. I occasionally Fair see as, I occasionally see something as I say as a civilian. <laughs> you know, 
where I will I will pay I will pay or get a ticket or something and see, and see something not because I have to. And I guess maybe this is a bit of an unfair question to ask. But what do you think opera needs to do, or opera generally, or the Met Opera needs to do to attract younger audience, or a different type of audience, or more of an audience? Well, they're trying. I mean, here's here's the problem about the Met Opera, is we have our auditorium seats. I think I don't know thirty five hundred. The largest. That's bigger than the theater where Wicked is. It's it's bigger than any Broadway theater. And we can't, you can't sell that space eight times a week. No, it's and big space. opera houses in Europe are, for the most part, smaller than we are. And they don't give nearly as many performances or they share the, the opera company shares the space with a dance company or a theater company or a ballet company, or they're not, nobody's giving as many performances. And probably, the, I don't know the exact, I would say the Met probably gives more performances in a season than like, all the other opera companies in the U.S. combined or something. You know, I mean, L.A. Opera does maybe a handful. They'll do okay. some concerts and some, you know, they'll do a, they'll show a movie and have and have the soundtrack played live by an orchestra, stuff like that. Chicago Lyric will do, you know, Showboat or Carousel or some musical theater. I mean, a little more musically ambitious, I suppose, but, you know, they'll do Sweeney Todd or something. They'll do something at the end of their season to kind of bring in a, bring in an audience. Now the Met, the Met, we've done, you know, the Merry Widow and uh Flater Mouse. That's about as close to kind of popular music that that we've done. And I think they're pretty clear they they do not want to go into the musical theater business. There isn't there is a kind of under 40 initiative at the Met trying okay. to Okay. You know, trying to get trying to get affluent under forty people interested in the Met to replace some of the older people who are dying off. I mean, I, I, this is me, and this I'm speaking on my. What is opera? What is the? I think you asked me what's the allure of the opera. allure of opera. Yeah, and opera by its nature is larger than life. People are singing their guts out. That doesn't happen in real life. There's nothing kitchen sink about it. It is. It is fantasy. It is escapism you want it you want to. you want to. you know i mean there obviously is an appeal of that in i mean we should be getting for for you know wagner's ring cycle we should be getting the same audience that watches game of thrones you know we should the people who that or or the lord of the rings the people who 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 like that kind of thing so i mm. feel like if we do if we do wagner we have to do it in a way that is just so fantastic that it can appeal to that kind of audience. I mean, I have I have a friend who just doesn't like opera, doesn't like the singing, and it took them to took them to Turando, and they were blown away just because of the visuals. It is mag magical. Um, not that everything has to be, you know, a riot of color, Colors. but it, it's just I want I and you know if somebody flies in from Japan for a week and they want to pack in pack in four or five operas, I want them to be able to see a wide range of looks. And you need a vision. You can't, you know, it can't be just like, oh, I like, I don't know. I think the 1930s are stylish. Let's just set this production in the 1930s. I, you know, I saw a wonderful, I saw a wonderful production many years ago of uh, Mary Wise of Windsor that was set in the 1950s. 
as is our production of Falstaff. And it was just so brilliant because that the director, I think, was Bill Alexander. He actually thought about every moment. How am I going to? And you can do this with Shakespeare. How am I going to? How am I going to take every moment and make it work in this setting? So you know the two the the scene where the two wives are exchanging letters that they got from Falstaff. He said it. He said it at the hairdresser under the under the hair dryers. You know, it was just like little things like that. And I think that's. I mean, I'm not a director, but I think you have to. If you take something out of its out of its whatever historic setting, you have to. You have to really be able to commit to that. commit to that look. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Um, and. Even if it's not my taste, you know, I've, I haven't seen I haven't seen the musical six, but it looks it looks clever because it looks like the director and the designers and the composers have all gotten on the same track, you know, a very a very clear vision. So whether it's your taste in music or not, you mentioned taste there just before in our yes. previous um, question and about that. Now, I know, obviously, you're. I mean, you know, I know you said that you weren't a fan of opera prior. I'm going to assume that now means you 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 do you are interested in it. But when it comes to your own aesthetic, and naturally you're assisting Sylvia, there will be in the case, I guess, more so of maybe revivals, more so than new stuff coming in. I'm not sure. Correct me if I'm wrong. But right. when you need to redesign something, how do you remove your personal feelings about the way it should look versus what is already established well, and you, the world you, which you're taking? You have to. I mean. If we're doing our job correctly, if I put in two new chorus women, you should not be able to tell which two I put in. You know, the, the, the designer of could come and she wouldn't realize which two we we designed and put in. Mm. I mean, sometimes there's a production that I don't personally like, but I still have to I still have to go with it. And yes, I can we can tweak it a little bit. I mean, we just made we we have a we have a new chorister who's I think she's six foot one who's in Falstaff and we had no dress that fit her for the finale and being modest her dress is the best dress on on stage but you know <laughs> it is still it still fits in with the color palette that the designer had done some of those dresses are very old and tired and there would be no reason to kind of duplicate them but it's hard you can't sometimes I have to say. We're making it too good. It's going to be the best looking thing on stage. It's going to stick out like a sore thumb. You know, it's so it is hard. I mean, there are some productions I don't I don't personally like the aesthetic of, but I have to work with it. You know, is it hard not to get personally invested Too personally? You're invested already naturally by the nature of what you're doing, oh, but too personally invested. I, I, I was like, you mean, I was losing sleep last week because we didn't have we went into the week of final dress rehearsal for Falstaff and we did not have like we didn't have acceptable boots on 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 a couple of characters. And I was just like, what are we going to do if they don't arrive and they don't fit? You know, I, I said that to the I said that to the singer. I said, oh, I'm so relieved. I said, I've been losing sleep that these boots weren't going to arrive and they weren't going to fit you. And she's like, you shouldn't do that. You should <laughs> I take things very personally. Well, no, this is what I was going to say because you, when I, I'm not sure if it was pre us for starting to record, but actually you start our episode. But you spend a lot of hours at work, if not at work, thinking about work. So when oh, it yeah. comes to that kind of balance of like, how do you not allow that that work life to seep into your personal, your own life, and it not? No, it's hard. It's hard, and yeah. I know I know some people who say. 
I like this job because I can just go home and I don't have to think about it. Yeah. You know? No, I try. And I try to, I try to get involved in other things and, you know, not, not obsess on it. And I do not, I mean, early in my tenure at the Met, I mean, when I freelanced, I was working seven days a week. Yeah. Doing a, doing a Broadway musical, it would be, if, if I had time off on a Sunday morning, I was at the flea market buying stuff, you know, and then I'd go to the, I'd go to the matinee on Sunday and then I would I would either take things home or I'd get up early in the morning on Monday morning when everyone in the production was off and I'd be picking clothes up at the theater and bringing them to the costume shops around town so that they would have most of Monday and Tuesday until until curtain time to be working on clothes. Wow. Um, it would be often 12 hours a day. I've never kept track of how many hours I work when when I was working on a Broadway show. So in this way, I'm. I'm working fewer hours. And I mean, I do not on my off time, like on a Sunday, I I can't imagine like going to the flea market for the Met or, you know, going to Macy's and looking at shoes or something. I just, I've kind, of gotten, I've kind of gotten beyond that. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's a very, it's a, it's an industry that, you know, that people just, it becomes their lives. I have, I have a friend who was getting a lifetime achievement award and he said, this is all I've ever wanted to do. And I kind of lit, thought then I said oh that's kind of sad you know is that what are you giving up in your own personal life so I mean I've gotten and I've I've done some I do things that have nothing to do with my work now that I only started you know after my father died after I took the Met job and then my father died I really then had had time to myself kind of for the first time in my life I mean <laughs> that is that a bizarre thing to say? It's no, like, no, it's not. I guess it gives so, you time to pursue things, different things yeah, you enjoy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like, I mean, I like my career, but it's not, I don't want it to be everything. That's quite and an important thing, actually. Ann Roth won an Oscar at 89. And it's like, I talked to her and she's like, well, I'm not retired. And I said, well, you don't have to be, but, you know, only take something you really want. I think when you're 89 and you've won two Academy Awards, I think you can just, slow down and like take whatever take something <laughs> only if something's irresistible you know do you I mean, take it i mean do i want to be doing this kind of do i even want to be doing my met schedule when i'm you know 70 80 90 no i think to work those that kind of pressure and those kind of hours it's a lot it's it's a lot yeah and it, it's just constant it never slows up uh, what I do want to know, and you mentioned you touched upon it there, was um, how did you get into what you do? But I, you know, I went to a liberal arts college and I had to take math and science and history and social science and foreign language fluency. And um, I had to take arts and I didn't know what I was going to major in. And I had to take an I had to take arts classes and I took a class called Introduction to Physical Production. And I did well at it. And people asked me to help them with their homework. And it was like, it's like, oh, that must be it. And I didn't, I wasn't like my friend Santo, who was designing in, you know, community theater at the age of 15. I wasn't really doing that. <laughs> you know, there are people like that, but no, I, he, he like sprung from the head of Zeus. So for me, it was like, I mean, I didn't really know how to sew. I mean, I, I did, I did kind of have a craft background. I had like every, I had every like kit in the world. I had like, you know, make your own moccasins and make your own, make your own, you know, crystal radio and make you know, casting resin and all that kind of stuff. You know, it wasn't exactly, it wasn't exactly costume making, but no, I had, and and both of my parents, both of my parents did a lot of kind of craft stuff and sewing and woodworking and stained glass and craft stuff. So it was not, and as I said earlier, they, 
they acted in community theater. So they were they were they were very into the theater. So it was, in a way, it wasn't. A, so when I went to my high school reunion, I was very nervous because people were going to ask me what I did for a living, and I and they just think it's like the weirdest thing in the world. And they said, "Oh, that makes sense. You were the you were the guy who like would you know take the train and go into New York and see Broadway shows." Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so I guess I was unfounded that you know. <laughs> but you know, I so I went to. I went to college with a lot of people who became doctors and lawyers. So, you know, you're at a reunion or cocktail party and it's like, what do you do? I'm a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. I'm a <laughs> costume designer. And everybody wants to talk to me. Nobody wants to talk to the lawyers. <laughs> it does automatically give us a, a, a kind of uh, some kind of cachet. Some yeah, kind of lure. Of, I think it, people think it's really glamorous, don't they? I think they that's think the it's people... very glamorous. Yeah. If they only, you know, if they only if saw they you with, like up to your, up to your elbows in like, dying rags or something you know <laughs> we've all done <laughs> dying something yeah. in a toilet or a yeah the, or the yeah. awkward places you end up in and what you end up doing it's very far from glamorous sometimes <laughs> oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah I was thinking about a, a friend of mine she said she said it's like I don't she was doing something with like rubber and dirt and, and she's like this is the glitz and glamour of of costumes you know I was thinking about that, like shredding something on a on a loading dock in Plymouth, England, for a, a national tour of oh, you know, wow. stuff like you know. It's like you're you're there with like sandpaper and a and a rasp and paint and you know making do. Do, right? do you do you miss that? Do you miss being? Do you miss using your hands? I guess being like, you know the TV show MacGyver. It's kind of like MacGyver. Yeah, it's like <laughs> I do. I do actually like. I do actually miss miss kind of some of that kind of just fly by the seat of your pants you're you know do you get to do I know I know you mentioned earlier that me you know we won't go into it but um in America that people have very specific roles and you don't deviate from that um, because of the way unionization works um but do you get to dabble in a bit of that yeah a little bit a, a little, little bit. bit yeah 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 that's good so you get to keep in touch with um you turn some you know you turn some fabric upside down you use the wrong side you I mean, we bought some very expensive fabric for Falstaff, and it's like I, I joked about. I don't want to send a picture of the costumes to the to the to the wholesaler who I bought it from because we used his fabric on the wrong side and overdyed it and then distressed it. It's very different from what you originally bought. <laughs> and what he, what most people, yeah, he's not going to show it to his other clients. Like this is what you could do with my fabric. That's you know a hundred dollars a yard. You can you know. <laughs> Overdye it, distress it, rag it out, and you know, make it. But that's but that's the beauty of what it is, though, isn't it? The ability to do that, and then to so that's something, it. yeah, to transform. I mean, from I know one there are to... there are designers there are designers who feel like you cannot put anything on stage that anyone can recognize. <laughs> Everything that goes on stage has to be dyed, painted, overdyed, an overlay, appliqued, uh, you know, tortured, beaded, something. <laughs> Fair enough, each to their own, I guess. Eh? But um, it is, I mean, the whole thing of costume, I guess, it is the, well, at least costume, costume props, for me anyway, I see it as a seeing something flat or that doesn't exist and then seeing it as something that then is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now does exist, I guess. It was just an idea and then it's there, it's tangible. Um, or it was a piece of fabric that's like this and suddenly it's this costume and that's right. quite and amazing. And that is a lot of stuff, even if I'm physically not doing it, it's like, the only thing, the only like in um, what do you call it in Macbeth, like the only ancient thing that Mark Thompson wanted were the crowns, and 
I said, okay, okay, I get that. I said, I said, and I had been to, I had been to, you know, Charlemagne's tomb in Aachen and I bought all these postcards of crowns because I like crowns and armor and stuff. So I bring in these postcards and, and I'm like, thinking, it's like, okay, I'm going to buy like lamp banding and I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy, you know, and, and, you know, in those stones were not faceted. They were not even necessarily um, an even shape. So I bought, I bought these, um, I think they call them nuggets. They use them in like stained glass stuff. Uh, so they're okay. kind of, they're like drop, they're like drop glass. So they're, they're kind of, they're kind of cabochons, but they're kind of off, sir, off round or yeah. off, off things like that, you know? So it's little things like that, that that's how I'm getting, even though I'm not physically putting the crown together. So, I mean, that is kind of my craft background is coming into play that I'm doing, which a lot of a lot of designers don't have that background. They wouldn't think of that. They just say, "I want it. I want this crown. You come up with how you're going to make that." So, I mean, I didn't get a fight from the I didn't get a fight from the craft person. They kind of were on board with that. <laughs> no, so I mean, I think I think my background and you know everybody, hopefully everyone's background. I mean, Sylvia was in in a previous life. Sylvia was a dancer. So, I would never, though I've worked with a lot of dancers, I really respect anything that she, any kind of input that she has about how how it should fit how it should move what they should put on their feet well, I guess she has the experience to be able yeah. to sort of you know yeah, I would never, yeah and she's designed dance as well so I would you know I would never and I think that's kind of how she feels about me and kind of the craft background that that's where that's where I have more experience than her and that's what I think makes a good team is if you if you can compliment people well you lean on each other's strengths don't you yeah, 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 I think you do. You do. Yeah, and I mean, she has very good taste, and I I appreciate that. And um, you know, it's like anything else. My job also is to kind of, I think, to streamline it and try to get on track of, okay, this is what we need to do for today, and what what you need to do tomorrow is important, but we need to do today. Um, do you like to see change in your industry? And I don't necessarily. This does not necessarily mean in relation to the opera house. It can be, but also just broadly in the industry. For you, in I guess in this in your setting that you're in now. I guess I would like I guess I would like to raise the raise the profile, raise the importance of how design how design is so integral to the success or the failure of a a show, a play, a movie, a ballet, an opera. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine just I just did a uh, a benefit of of uh, for uh, the fiftieth anniversary of Pippin with a friend of mine at uh, fifty four below, and. It was very nice. He he invited the he invited the living designers or their and and the and the widow of the set designer and mentioned them and told stories about them. And that was Pippin, which is like I can't imagine what Pippin would be like without without what the design team did. Um, you know, it got, comes down to, you know, giving giving Tony Awards off camera for the designers. It's kind of mm. it's kind of rude. Design has an, an enormous, an enormous impact on a show and that can't yeah. be not that it I mean the script has to start and if you don't have the script you don't have a show yeah but it plays an important part and can be undermined sometimes <laughs> I mean I probably said to you the greatest the greatest compliment I think a designer can ever or certainly a costume designer can ever get is you get someone dressed up and they say now I know my character yeah you've helped me create my character you have to kind of you know that's where you have to become a you know a psychologist a communicator as well a a facilitator yeah yes I guess I could do the um you know uh 
during COVID, so much of so much of the industry was really decimated, like a lot of people, and just trying trying. I would like to I would like to maintain the costume industry in New York because mm. I think there's a lot of it is like what's the cheapest place to go to to have the clothes made. There's been a lot of pressure from city government to move the move the. I guess I should explain there is there is a garment district in New York. It keeps shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Yes. Dozens of trim stores, fabric stores, millinery supply, button stores have all closed. There's the, a lot of city government want to move everything that's left out to to Brooklyn and kind of abandon the traditional Midtown Manhattan section. A lot mm. it 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 is it is a symbiotic relationship. So I go to a fabric store, they have fabric that's an overrun, let's say, from a Seventh Avenue designer. Uh, and I buy that and make a costume. Because I obviously I can't I can't have, you know, hundreds of yards made. And conversely, the fashion designers are also going to the fabric stores. They they're buying something to make a garment for a runway show. And then if it's if there there are orders, then that is then then those fabrics are then manufactured right. wherever. And so it's it's coming in and out. I mean, I mm. think a show like Project Runway, I don't know if you have that where you are or versions of that. Yes. That has really spurred a lot of interest in costume making. So during COVID, sewing machines were sold out, back ordered. Yeah, uh, we had something similar here, I think, in terms of interest know, so in making. I mean, I don't know if, so if we can just, I think it's very important to to keep to keep the to try to keep the industry in New York and London and and traditional. I think, yeah, I think it's a challenge that a lot of cities are facing. Yeah, good, so if good. if we can maintain maintain the industry, and um, there is there is there had there was a whole kind of coalition to try to 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 keep people in business throughout COVID because a lot of people had really no orders. Mm. So hopefully, hopefully we're creeping back. Uh, I hope so uh, too. I mean, box office is not what it was before. Maybe it will never be there. And even people are used to now things online. People are like movie theaters. People are saying, I'll just wait till it's on oh. Netflix. Uh, with the opera, I'll wait till it, there's the HD broadcast. Can I watch it on, on Zoom? Do I have to go and watch it live? I do, yeah, I think I think at the moment that is it's more convenient. But I do think there is something special about going. Um, I do think there is something special of, about going in and seeing. So I, I like you. I do hope that with especially live theatre, um, whether that comes in the form of plays, opera, immersive theatre experiences. See that it, it live. It's yeah, very... it is something different about it. Even going yeah. to the cinema. Um, yeah. So I would definitely second that. And oh, this brings me on to my final question, I guess, which is what are your three to watch recommendations? Well, we just, this year, this season, we just did um, the John Dexter production of Poulenc's Dalek of the Carmelites, which is one of the, one of the best things I've ever seen. Ah, uh, okay. And it, it obviously beautifully sung, but it, it very, very powerful dramatics, beautiful, beautiful staging, simple staging. Uh, there's no projections. There's no flying the scenery. It's, it's, Brilliantly designed because it was right after the Met had a warehouse fire and they needed to get a lot of productions up quickly. And they hired John Dexter, who, when he was good, was great. And so Poulenc wrote this set in the 18th century, but he wrote it in the mid 20th century. So what I liked is that the set designer, David David Repa, had 
he kind of pulled elements, mid 20th century elements into the scenery, while the clothes by Jane Greenwood were, um, were 18th century and beautifully broken down. And uh, it, it, it's just a very powerful piece and I'm not Catholic. So that would be one that I would recommend that it, if it's in the rep, you should see it. Thank you all. Uh, I saw a production of, of Fiona Shaw in, in Mackinac, directed by uh, Stephen Daldry, designed by Ian McNeil. That was mm. fantastic. I mean, she's a, she's a great she's, actress. I love, I love Fiona Shaw, yeah. yeah. And she came and directed something at the Met, even. Ah. Uh, but so it was just one of those amazing, like, fearless performances. She was, like, crawling all over the set. Oh. Uh, it just, you know, if somebody's, it in terms of, I am going to say something that is not not the name of a show, but a performer. And obviously, if it were 50 years ago, I would say, see Julie Harris in anything. Uh, but today, I would say, go see Mark Rylance in anything. Yeah, I love Mark Rylance. I mean, I would <laughs> I would see him I would see him read the phone book. I was going to say, I would love him to just read me stories, just random yeah. stories. <laughs> so now I've, I've named a play, an opera and a performer. Well, that brings us to the end. And I just want to say thank you very much for taking the time oh, to speak sure. to me because I know it's been over the course of a couple of days as well. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mitch. And if you get a moment, could you please like, follow or subscribe on your podcast platform and follow the Crew Chats podcast on Instagram. Thank you.